0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany, actually from the apartment in Berlin that Adam Toos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor has been renting for these past few weeks. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, Adam's time in Berlin will be up soon. But uh, we may have a chance to get together again, maybe even for a live show later this year. More info on that later when we know specifics. But first, our data points. The first data point that came to mind actually was 100. It turns out that this is our 100th episode in total. So, yeah, thanks to everyone. Thanks to listeners. Thanks to you, Adam. It's been fun. Here's here's to another 100.
1: It's been fantastic. Yeah, really looking forward to (laughs) exactly many more, many more episodes.
0: Uh, In the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economy of Niger. It's all a part of our month-long country focus. We've already done a handful of countries, and we'll be talking about Niger in the second half. But first, we thought we'd do something a little closer to where we're sitting right now geographically, and the data point there is 3.5%, which is the increase in the interest rate that was imposed on Tuesday by Russia's central bank that was imposed after the Russian currency, the ruble, dropped in value pretty precipitously. Leaders and central bankers are scrambling today to deal with the dramatic fall of the ruble. The country's currency has dropped to the lowest since the Emergency early
1: day. session on Tuesday morning, hiking interest rates by 3.5 percent. It's trying to support the ruble, which has lost 40 percent of its value since last year. Russia the invasion of Ukraine last year, Russia became the most sanctioned nation on earth. Until now, the Kremlin found ways around the embargoes, but the pain couldn't be avoided forever. On Monday, the
0: ruble fell to- One ruble is now, or was, worth less than one cent, US cent, before that increase in the interest rate. Yeah, it all comes after more than a year into the war that Russia started in Ukraine. And we've talked about the Russian economy before. But now with this crash in the ruble's value, it struck us as a good time to be talking about it again. So, Adam, the first question that came to mind was, why exactly is a weak ruble a problem for Russia that required this kind of extraordinary intervention? I mean, we talked about the crisis measures that Russia imposed earlier on in the war, and if, you know, I re- recall correctly, we talked about how Russia could be heading towards a more autarkic model, trying to be more self-reliant, that a lot of sort of the policy options it had as a, as a country that issued its own currency, that maybe uh, this was a test of whether it really needed to be reliant on the rest of the world. So, yeah, why would a weak ruble pose a problem to, to Russia's economic strategy?
1: So this is a really interesting question. I mean, if we if we had wanted to, uh, we could have used 100 as the the hook for the Russian segment as well, because the ruble has crashed through 100 rubles to the dollar, which is a very significant psychological level. Um, it's kind of the, the worst level the ruble reached. In the initial shock of the war, financial sanctions in February 2022, it recovered to as strong as 50 to the dollar um, last year and has now slumped to this much lower level. So that's a shock. Uh, It really has come as a shock to the Russian population. The psychology is a key element of this. The ruble is a totem of Russia's strength, sovereignty, and so on. And so for it to be yielding this much to the dollar, it looks bad. The economic side of this is a little more of a puzzle in a sense, because as you were saying, Cam, if Russia has actually turned itself into an autarkic, Economy, then then the value and the cost of imports shouldn't really matter that much, um, because the economic reason why a low currency matters is that it drives up the cost of imports and helps to trigger and stoke inflation. So, to the extent that that's actually what's on the Russian policymakers' minds, it is a striking testament to the fact that imports are still actually a significant issue for the Russian economy. Why is this happening? It has turned out to be really the big political issue, and in, in a really rare break in the facade of unity that Moscow has managed to maintain, at least at the leadership level, during the course of the war. There has been a a, a public argument between the head of the central bank, who we've talked about several times, Elvira uh, Nabulina, and another figure that we've also spoken about, this guy, uh, Maxim moreshkin who I had the uh, pleasure, is maybe not quite the right word, but certainly the occasion to meet several times before he was promoted to Putin's chief economic advisor, and Oreshkin has excoriated the central bank for failing to anticipate this collapse in the currency um, by adequately tight monetary policy earlier in the day. So that's why they're now sticking up interest rates. But if you go a further step back, what this is telling you about the Russian economy is that the under the influence of the war, it's going gangbusters. So the consequence of the war spending, which is up around 6-7% of GDP and probably more than that. That's just what's on the record in the defense budget. And the efforts to prop up Russia's industrial economy and agricultural economy in the face of sanctions have actually caused something like an inflationary boom. And as Russia's import exports dwindle under the effect of sanctions and its economy booms, it in fact tends to suck in imports which will lead to a shift towards deficit in the current account, in the trade account. And that is a classic driver of a depreciation of the currency. It's also one way in which the currency adjusts and tends to push the economy back to equilibrium. So what we're seeing here is all the signs of a Russian economy kind of being driven in an inflationary way by the pressures of the war economy. And an argument amongst the Russian elite about the embarrassing failure of the central bank to anticipate the effect on the exchange rate, which is now causing a bit of a funk. None of this, I think, adds up to an existential drama for the Russian war economy, but it's very telling about both the politics and the economics of the situation that we're in.
0: So when it comes to the effects of the war on the Russian economy, I'm curious about the effects on labor markets. I mean, what direct effect has the war had on Russian labor, whether through mobilization that we've seen or emigration away from Russia? Is that already legible in economic data?
1: It is, and it's fully consistent with the picture that the other numbers are painting in the sense that an economy, a war economy running relatively hot, the way the Russian war economy is running, is going to run short of labor. Um, And that's what we're seeing. We're talking about a very considerable crunch in the workforce under the age of 35 Um, because they're extending the draft all the way up to the age of 30. So they're beginning to dig into the prime male labor force. And at the same time, as has been widely reported, about a million Russians have um, entered an emigration, whether to escape the draft or out of protest, or just a desire to opt out of the insanity that their country has been hurled into. And we think that's about 10% of Russia's tech workforce, if not more. And so there is indeed a supply side crunch. We're not yet anything like total war condition in Russia. But again, the the issue here is not unemployment, but rather a kind of wrenching reallocation of priorities of Russian society and the Russian economy under the conditions of, if not a permanent total war economy, then what is increasingly looking like a long haul, medium effort kind of war mobilization.
0: Hmm. When it comes to the effect of sanctions, on the Russian economy until now. One remarkable thing is that the West, over time, has shown some creativity in designing its sanctions against Russia's energy sector in particular. That includes from Europe, for example, not just a direct boycott on oil, but price caps on oil product exports to non-Western nations. So have these sanctions on a whole proven effective uh, against the Russian economy?
1: Yeah, so there's two layers of sanctions that the Europeans have led on. And the ones we're talking about here are oil, and oil always matters more to the Russian economy than gas. Though gas has hogged the headlines in terms of policy discussion in Europe, it's very much secondary to oil exports. And the thing about the oil exports are, of course, they in fact they impact a global market. So unlike gas, which flows through pipelines or LNG tankers, oil is essentially one big single global market, which is why the war also impacted American consumers. You don't buy any Russian gas, but if oil supplies from any source are placed in jeopardy, then it affects the demand supply balance for the global oil market. And that ripples through to absolutely everyone, regardless of how much oil America itself makes, for instance. And so in designing the sanctions, what the issue was, was to design the sanctions that would reduce Russia's export revenue from oil, which is the mainstay of its war economy, without massively unbalancing the global oil market and inflicting huge damage above and beyond what was already done by gas and food price shocks in 2022 on vulnerable oil consumers around the world. And so the strategy that was adopted was to remove European demand for oil from the global market and then to impose a cap in the sense that European tankers and insurance companies, which are deeply involved in the Russian oil trade, are only allowed to continue doing that if the contracts they're involved in are set below a certain threshold price for oil, which is $60 per barrel. And so that is this double regime. There is a total ban on European demand for Russian oil and since Russia was a major supplier, that disrupted Russia's market position. Russia then desperately scrambled to find new buyers. This was the plan, not to prevent them from selling, but to force them to sell on much less good conditions. They found eager buyers, notably in Asia and particularly India. India was then able to bargain the Russians down. And the threshold price was this $60 threshold, because everyone knows that it's only if you contract at less than that, that you can access the, you know, a large part of the tanker fleet and a large part of the insurance market that covers those shipments. And so the idea was to shrink Russia's export revenue, and it has succeeded. And I think there's a consensus in the expert community that the thing that has really worked is the basic idea of withdrawing European demand specifically from Russian oil and skewing the market therefore in favor of other clients who can use Europe's absence as leverage against Russia. What is not working on the other hand is the price cap because it's set too, it's too generous. So it's too close to what the market price has emerged as once we escape from the panic of 2022. And there is all sorts of fiddling going on that you can see in, for instance, the Indian trade statistics where the price nominally paid for Indian contracts in Russia's uh, Pacific export terminals is safely below the European cap at something like $40. So everyone cheers. But when the same oil shows up in India's import statistics, it's valued all of a sudden at $70. So somewhere in between the Russian terminal and the Indian port, $30 gets added. Now, insofar as that's an Indian profit, That's fine. Insofar as it goes to the Europeans, it's a bit dodgy because they're not supposed to be making profit beyond $60. But the real worry is, in fact, Russia's involved with this. And Russia is involved not just in the shipment, but in fact also in owning substantial parts of the Indian refinery system, from which then refined products are actually being shipped on to other parts of the world. Because shipping, trans- forcing the displacement of Russian oil into India, for instance, was part of the plan. Because the Indians aren't going to then buy the Russian oil on top of other oil they would buy; They just shift in cheaper Russian oil as opposed to Saudi oil, for instance. But if all of this ultimately is actually profiting Russian businesses, there's a real worry. And so that's, I think, where the concern is. The fact is the Russians are still running a trade surplus and still earning on net. And that means that the sanctions are working, but not perhaps as aggressively as we want. And certainly nowhere near aggressively enough
0: as to actually impact Russia's ability to continue the war anytime soon. Just hearing you describe this, it makes it sound like the hour for technocrats has really arrived in some like geopolitical sense. Like it's, I mean, but yeah, of course, the sanctions extend beyond Russia's exports. They also include various imports that Russia is allowed or not allowed to make. I'm curious, what kind of sanctions busting regime has developed to evade the sanctions on Russia?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say about it is that it's a very well-funded sanctions busting regime, because the Russians last year, as much as the West impounded their existing reserves, the Russians just earned themselves as the Germans would say, you know, dumb and stupid last year. I mean, there was just so much revenue coming in from the from the not really gas. Well, gas, you know, was a good earner, but the, the big, big, big earner was oil. So the Russians are sitting on new funds beyond those that were sanctioned and impounded, to the tune you know you'd be on the conservative side if you said it was 130 billion closer probably to the truth if you said there was 150 billion dollars worth of russian assets sitting out there and when we say out there the other thing we know about this effort is that it runs around the edges of the western zone that revealed itself with the sanctions that were imposed so everyone that's in on those is no no place to put russian money So where does it sit? It sits in the Emirates, it sits in Hong Kong, it sits in China, to a degree in India. Wherever they are earning, they are keeping it. So they don't take it back to Russia because then it's quite difficult to use it globally and you don't put it anywhere near Europe or the United States. So with that kind of money really that is a huge wall of financial pressure you would have to have seamlessly watertight secondary sanctions brutally aggressive enforcement at every single level because otherwise you know you're trying to buy the most expensive those ai nvidia microchips we were talking about the other day the the top of the line rolls royce version is forty thousand dollars per chip right you know russians don't need anything even remotely that sophisticated and they've got 150 billion dollars to bid with so you know, they get what they need. And if you look at the latest data on critical technological imports to Russia, where there's a group headed by former Ambassador McFall that has been tracking this stuff, and again, it really is a technocratic kind of wet dream that's going on here in terms of monitoring these supply chains. All the evidence suggests is that after a big shock to Russia's ability to import chips, I remember us talking about this last year, they are way back. They are, in fact, above their pre-war levels in terms of their purchases of everything from actual drones that they get from, say, the Iranians to all of the microchips they need. And American companies are still supplying Russia on a very large scale in these critical technology areas. Of course, not directly, but by way of Hong Kong, by way of China, by way of um, these indirect routes. But with this kind of purchasing power, this is the critical thing. For the sort of amount of high-tech stuff the Russians need to buy, there's just such a huge imbalance between how much that costs and how much they can bid that you would need a whole other order of surveillance and enforcement to be able
0: to stop it. So so finally, I guess I want to ask whether there is any kind of path back to normal for the Russian economy. I mean, even if the war, let's say it ends sometime soon, does Russia's new nationalist post-war political economy that you've been describing, does that just have its own path dependence now? Is that just a kind of own fact of life that we have to reckon with?
1: It clearly does, but I just don't think we can indulge this speculation like the war isn't ending anytime soon certainly not from the Russian side. I think it's pretty evident that Putin's regime is going to reconfigure itself around a kind of permanent war basis. It's clearly not their first best. They would have wanted a quick victory in the carving up of Ukraine. But since they can't have that, they've bitten and they're going to hold, I think. Uh, Their economic position is vastly stronger than that of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has much more powerful and richer friends. But but I think the, the scenario to have in mind here, and there's some amazing research coming out. If you just stick it through Google Translate, it's just mind-blowing stuff. So the people I used to deal with at Renipa, the, the kind of um, school of government in Moscow, that they have a bunch of good economists, and they are doing these scenario plans for Russia you know, five years from now. And one of their scenarios is a kind of prolonged war economy that, in their view, actually might help to build out the Russian middle class. As long as you can keep the wheels on the bus and given Russia's access to Asian demand and the fact that the US has not gone full Iran or Venezuela on Russia, you know, there's a there's a scenario here of a really prolonged effort on the Russian side, which for Ukraine is incredibly grim because Russia Ukraine's war effort, we should check in on this over the fall, you know, is uh, three or four times greater in proportional terms. So... I think from an economic point of view, that's the fundamental discrepancy here. Russia can, of course, is paying a price. Of course, it's terrible for long run growth. Of course, it's, you know, profoundly damaging in many ways to its economic prospects, but not in the same way as the war is for Ukraine. And it, again, speaking from the European vantage point, the European backers of Ukraine have kind of wrapped their heads around this in the sense that the EU has built out a long-term program of support. And I think one of the really neuralgic issues going forward is going to be whether the American political system, given the shifts that are likely next year and all of the tension building up there, whether from the American side, there can be anything like an equivalent level of support, not for Ukraine on the military side, but on the economic and financial side. So I think this is a key issue. We're bound to come back to it in the coming months.
0: Certainly, and maybe even also to the question of what kind of development model this could be for Russia. But we do need to end the conversation here for now, but stick around because we will be right back to talk about the economy of Niger. Okay, welcome back. Our next data point is $1,330. That is the average per capita income in Niger, which is just one of the indicators that qualifies it as one of the world's poorest countries. Unlike Russia or many of the other countries we've covered these past few weeks, Niger is not a major global economy. Its economy consists largely of subsistence farming but also critically of mining, specifically mining of uranium. And Niger, of course, is also a country that's been in the news recently with a coup having deposed its democratically elected leader, leading to diplomatic controversies in Africa and also in the West. So yeah, as I mentioned, Niger has plenty of raw commodities, and it's also generally had a stable government. It's also not been afflicted by war, And yet, despite all those facts, it's one of the world's poorest countries, as I mentioned. So what problems exactly have prevented Niger from at least achieving the economic level of other countries in the region? I mean, is this partly because the country was less developed during the colonial period, specifically, Adam?
1: So, I mean, it really, it's hard to exaggerate, I think, how serious the economic um, situation of Nigeria is. I mean, when we say it's its one, it's a poor country, I mean, it's literally number three at the bottom of the global list, 167th out of 169 countries in terms of the human development index. I mean, it is, it is desperately, desperately poor. One of the ways that manifests is that it's an overwhelmingly agrarian population in terms of employment, Um, But 80% of the country has Sahara Desert, Um, so um, the the conditions um, of production, of development, could hardly, hardly be worse. We talk about mining uh, in Niger for kind of obvious reasons, and we tend to focus on the formal mining sector that employed uh, around uranium, for instance. Um, but again, to give a kind of sense of what kind of a country and what kind of an economy this is, whereas there's a few thousand people employed in formal mining in Niger, there are hundreds of thousands of people involved in informal mining, which, as in many of the other countries of the Sahel belt, is actually mainly concentrated on gold, um, not the sort of globally strategically relevant um, uranium it's a it's a country that locked really in a in a, in in one of the most abiding deadlocks of development. It has the highest fertility of any country in the world and a literacy rate of about a third. So there is a fundamental problem in the formation of of, of human capital. It does indeed trace back to the colonial period, but it was it was. never uh, uh, a center of uh, of a rich economic productive system. The, The conditions are very, very unpropitious for that. This isn't to say, though, that it's static. So one of the important things to recognize is the last 10 years or so of Niger's economic development were, in fact, up to the COVID crisis, relatively promising. It attracted a huge surge in foreign direct investment above all concentrated, actually not so much in mining, there's a kind of time clock ticking on the uranium business, but um, in new energy, both in renewable energy, there's a lot of sun, um, but also most spectacularly in oil. So there's a major Chinese um, funded uh, investment in Niger's oil sector and the longest pipeline in Africa was snaking its way out from Niger to Benin. Um, but that also points to one of the difficulties that Niger has: is it is it, it is poorer than almost all its neighbours? But the problems, the, ta- the the disturbances in the neighbouring countries, notably in Mali, um, impact the development of Niger's economy. So the Chinese project has been stalled for several years because of the insecurity in Mali. Um, so it's a structurally poor country with an exploding population, with very very low capital per capita. Um, in a region that is cut across by large-scale population movement. right? These informal mining sectors are giant population movements, like continental-scale gold rushes in the United States in the 19th century, around a fragile state formed around colonial boundaries, hit again and again by shocks from the outside with a highly agrarian population, which is now in the absolute crosshairs of desertification and um, climate change.
0: So... To focus a bit on the uranium business, the sort of formal side of the mining economy that you were talking about, I'm curious what determines the success of that uranium business exactly. Does the price of uranium on global markets, does that fluctuate dramatically over time? Are there boom and bust cycles as a result in the treasury of the Nigerian government?
1: There are, the Nigerian government's not very good at taxing, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, So, um, its treasury is very fragile under the best of circumstances. And the uranium price does fluctuate. It's a fascinating market. Nigeria is somewhere between the sixth and the seventh largest producer. There's a lot of very, very big producers in there. Canada was for a long time a huge player. You've got Kazakhstan, other African suppliers. Like, it's a dynamic market with two basic sources of demand, the military programs, which are now largely static, and the global reactor population of like 400 plus active nuclear reactors that need refueling periodically. And so there are these big stocks of ex-military uranium and uranium that was piled up in periods of relatively low demand and high supply. And the price fluctuates quite wildly, I mean, across a span of, you know, a factor of, you know, ten to one, roughly, from from peaks um, in 2007 to to lows in 2015. I mean, it's now at a, in a kind of mid range. But the the thing I think to recognise is that the the uranium may be in Niger, but but it's not really a Nigerian business. I mean, the 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 companies that operate there are above all uh, French, going back to the colonial period. There's a long and tangled history of French uh, colonial contracts. The uranium is not delivered to the French at the prevailing spot price. Um, There is now a large, highly financially leveraged intermediary spot market between, as it were, the supplies that are available in the global market, the supplies that France and other buyers of uranium can get in these long-term contracts which have been signed, And they're signed between the government and the corporation, which is partly French-owned, partly Nigerian-owned, but has majority, in most cases, majority um, foreign ownership. And and these corporations drive the business. The Nigerian government is estimated to receive not much more than 13% of the revenue that's generated. So it's a highly unequal, unbalanced um, business. And the long run prospects of the Nigerian uranium mines that they currently stand aren't great, so one of the things that the country will have to deal with going forward is dealing with the aftermath of uranium mar- mining and the cleanup um, when the big french um, when the big French producers exit
0: so to shift to niger's agricultural sector I'm curious why exactly the farming sector in the country hasn't really substantially developed, it seems, beyond basic subsistence farming. And I'm curious, would that be the most natural place for an economic development policy to start for the country? I think the first thing to say is that it's an incredibly tough
1: place to make a living as a farmer. The population has nevertheless exploded, and one of the rules of Nigerian society is a partible inheritance system, which leads to the partitioning of farms into smaller and smaller plots. So that's problem number one. That makes it harder and harder to develop and to build up the capital necessary to make investments. And crucially, what Nigeria needs is uh, efficient systems for collecting rainwater. It only rains for a couple of months of the year if you're lucky. And ideally, you, you you carefully harvest that water and use it to produce irrigation over the course of the year. You dig deep wells. And in a society as poor as this, you are caught in a kind of vicious circle in which, because you're poor, you can't maintain, build up the capital you can't save. You can't likewise send your kids to school. Um, and so they they remain on the farm. The farm remains at a very primitive level of cultivation, development, um, another key factor is that in the economy of Niger, a lot of farm labor is coded and gendered as female and, and women in Nigerian society are by many, many indicators um, hugely discriminated against. And um, one, of, one of the key areas in which this happens is that they find it difficult to gain access to funds, capital. If the thing that's centrally missing in Nigerian agriculture is investment, then all of these things militate against that. One way out would be for Nigeria to develop a market-based and more commercially orientated agriculture, and one of the things you would look for is for Nigeria to trade with its neighbours. But Nigeria has actually got quite protective. Trade policies in place, notably including taxes on exports from Niger, because they're, for obvious reasons, preoccupied with issues of food security. But that means that farmers who tend to cluster in the southern part of the country further away from the Sahara descent, and are therefore closer to neighbours like Nigeria uh, don't have the opportunity to actually earn cash and thereby build capital which would allow them to increase investment so far from actually making progress in many areas of irrigation if you look at the reports of development agencies you actually see regression in breakdown failure to maintain inability to maintain i think what should probably say um, what limited irrigation infrastructure and water harvesting infrastructure was actually there. So you put all of those things together. Then you add in the pastoral element because there's also an element of a herding population here. And you really begin to get a sense of how fraught and complicates this complex the situation is.
0: This is interesting because we so rarely talk about Poor countries on this. We podcast. should talk. I mean, we more are talking about, about poor major countries, countries yeah. but yeah, we don't. I mean, this, and this is, I guess, there's general question of just how do poor countries make policy? I mean, do, is there a coherent economic policy in the government of Niger that you can identify? And how does policy get made? You know, what, what factors are even flowing into it?
1: Well, this is part of the sort of heartbreak over the coup. I mean, it's coded in terms of geopolitics and the fact that you know the West has lost It's one of its final friends and military bases and so on. And, and all of that is real. But there is also heartbreak over the fact that the last 10 years or so actually saw quite a rapid development in Niger through foreign investment, through the development of renewable energy, um, through various types of, of fossil fuel energy projects. Um, and so, actually, yes, the answer to your question is Niger did have absolutely, in conjunction with aid agencies and external support, um, it was building a development program. Um, the problem is, if, you know, you're growing at six or seven percent per annum, which is what Niger was managing up to the COVID epidemic, um, is fantastic. It's just if you start from the base that Niger is starting from, you know, seven um, percent on a per capita income of five hundred dollars. Um, is, you know, an extra $40, an extra $30 a year, um, uh, which is dramatic um, by global standards, but it doesn't, it only moves you within the zone of absolute poverty. I, like, you can't even really qualify it, like like 7% up on the kind of
0: absolute poverty that Nigerians live in. I suppose this leads to my final question, which is, what exactly does Nigeria's economy teach us about the current state of France-Afrique? So this is the special relationship that France likes to think it has with its former French colonies. Uh, obviously, it no longer has those colonies, but ever since they've become independent, France has maintained or tried to maintain some special deep ties politically and economically. So, yeah, what does France-Afrique consist of at all today, judging from Niger's experience? I think I mean I think it does teach us that it's
1: France Afrique is disintegrating and that unlike after decolonization, um, in the sixties when France, you know, had the I don't know what to call it, energy, intention, interest, but also the backing of the, the United States notably, um to rebuild power um after decolonization. I just don't think there's anything remotely like that kind of interest now. I mean We are, after all, also after an almost 10-year period of France's war on terror, which centred on the Sahel, in fact, it's longer than 10 years, right? Um, And uh, for which Niger was the last welcoming, uh, under the, the previous regime, was the last welcoming base. And we should say that the previous regime was by all intents and purposes. And this is not to relativize the significance of the coup. It was by... By any prevailing standards, I think uh, a government that was was more freely and fairly elected than the vast majority in the region, and um, you know to that extent, it's profoundly regrettable that it was toppled the way that it was. But um, the the France Afrique, I think, is a sort of is a is a dead husk of what it it formerly was. Um, this isn't the only coup, I think, across the French belt. Right, this is the really striking thing: Burkina Faso, Guinea. Mali have all fallen victim to military coups Um, and there's a there's a kind of parallelism it's difficult I think if you were arguing in social scientific terms would you say that you could certainly say for certain that this was essentially an effect of the French empire that was driving this instability or could you say the French empire happened to be in a zone which has turned out to be one of the areas of weakest development which has these huge advancing frontiers of commodity development, like the informal mining, notably of gold that we were talking about, that is on the boundary between Christian and Islamic Africa and has therefore come into the crosshairs of Islamic radicalism in recent decades. You know, that isn't all the French factor, but there's certainly an element of dysfunction here. And delegitimization, you started, Cam, by saying that Niger had a track record of relative political stability. In fact, it's had five coups since independence and several other coups that failed, including an attempted coup just before the accession to power of the government that was overthrown. So this hasn't been a story, a successful story of transition to sovereign self-rule and self-government. But there are also profound structural conditions that don't make it surprising that... um, this should be a zone of political instability and violence in the current moment but no i think this is probably the the stake in the heart <laughs> and and french imperialism may indeed need uh, a stake in the heart maybe some garlic on top to to really do the job of putting an end to that to that vision
0: yeah obviously this coup is a story about niger above all but it does seem from the french perspective that there's some kind of sentimental romantic notion that's also being dismantled as a result of these events Uh, and yeah perhaps overdue uh, probably overdue it sounds like but we should end this conversation here for now we will continue our tour of the world next week so stick around for that and yeah otherwise thanks to those who again who've uh, been listening these past 100 episodes Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us, that's at onesandtwospod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.